Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. The great subject of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. We've said that before and it's something that we must keep always in mind. And because this great subject of Christ is infinite, there's nothing finite about Christ, We do not get a single, simple statement of these things. And for one thing, we've noticed, we've seen that we've been alternating in some respects between the twin aspects of Christ, as he is the savior of repentant sinners, the lamb, and as the judge of unrepentant sinners. We've seen both of these things repeated a number of times. Both of these are equally true, and they ultimately point to this central aspect of his holiness. But they're very often dealt with individually. And another thing that seems to alternate in Revelation is not just these aspects of Christ, these attributes of Christ, but the time frame of the events, of the the outworking of redemptive history. And several times already we have seen thee come to the end of all things. And then it resets. And we go back in time when we begin again. We see everything from a different angle. And I think that's what we have here in chapter 20. We have once again in chapter 19 come to the end. To the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all is done, and all is settled. And now 
we reset back to the events of the cross and of the current age. Now I say I think because I do not pretend that every detail of the precise timing and of the precise ordering of the things that we have in Revelation or generally of, of eschatology are absolutely patently clear. You know, when the general rule is that when Scripture is clear, we must be clear. We have no choice otherwise. And when it is less clear, we must be a little circumspect. Now, the broad outlines of what's going to happen in the end, what is called general eschatology, um, the, you know, there's particular special eschatology that happens to do with what happens to the saints in heaven and what happens to the damned in hell. But this general eschatology of the second coming, the broad outlines of these things are very clear and they're part of our confession of faith. It says in Confession 8.4, we confess that Christ shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. That's, that's the, part, the relevant part in the confession. And even the fullest statement in the larger Catechism 56 doesn't add all that much. How is Christ to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world? Now notice, by the way, the, the question, the way that's stated. And I think that's the way the question ought to be. It's not how and when and in what order will the events of the end times happen for our curiosity. It's rather how is Christ to be exalted. And that's always the right question to ask in everything. And the answer to that is Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world, in that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his glory and of his fathers, with all his holy angels, with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God to judge the world in righteousness. So those things are absolutely set and we confess them. But the details, the precise ordering and the precise timeline, these things are maybe not so clear. And I would just add, by the way, that the details of eschatology, at least to me, don't seem to be what Revelation has been about so far. That hasn't been the emphasis of the book so far. And I do not think that they change all of a sudden in chapter 20. That hasn't been the great Emphasis, Because this book reveals Jesus Christ. And that's the great function of all of Scripture. Because the, the function, the, what it leads to, is our justification, our salvation. We have to hear about Christ. We have to hear who he is and what he did in order to believe in Christ and be saved. And we have to see him in order to be sanctified. Christ has to be shown to us who he is and what he's done. And that we then are trans, in the, the words of Corinthians, we are transformed into his image over time as we behold Christ spiritually in Scripture. These are the great functions of all of Scripture and certainly of Revelation. And I'd further add that Revelation was written specifically. The, the reason the context was written was as a practical comfort to persecuted saints. And that's all of us. Because Second Timothy 3.12 says, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we desire to live godly, we will be persecuted on this earth. And therefore, this book is a book of comfort to us as Christ people. What they needed to hear is that things are going to be much better than, things are actually much better right now than what they appear. They appear bad, but things are going to be, things are better, and furthermore, they're going to be even, even better. 
They're going to eventually be better than anyone could possibly imagine. And these, I'd, I'd put it in these three ways. That at the time, Satan seemed to be so powerful. He seemed that his rule and his authority was unlimited and no one could stay his hand. And sometimes we feel like that. But no, we're going to find out that he's a defeated enemy, that he's working within the very strict limitations that his judge and his jailer permit him to operate within. They needed to know that and we need to know that. And also, of course, they're afraid to die. That's the thing about being persecuted. There are aspects of your life that are in, in, threatened, sometimes even your physical life. And they're afraid to die. And they need to understand that death no more has dominion over them. That the sting and the great power of death, it has no authority, has no power over those who have put their faith in Christ. They needed to know that and we need to know that. And they themselves, if Satan seemed so powerful, death seemed so scary, they themselves seemed so utterly powerless. They were being trampled at every level by the Jewish leaders, by the secular Roman authorities, by the shopkeepers and the, and the trade guilds and all the rest of it. They were being trampled underfoot and they seemed as if they had no power whatsoever. And Christ's message to them is that they will be given royal power. There will be thrones set for them and they will sit on these thrones and they will judge. They will be given this, this royal authority. They needed to know that and we need to know that. Now all of these things were won at Calvary. All of these things were won by Christ's death and resurrection. It's this great work of Christ's atonement. And what I'd call to summarize all these things, what I'd call it is to say the great power shift. And this great power shift in these three ways. First, that Satan's power is curtailed. Second, that death's power is destroyed. And third, that the saints are given royal power. Great power shift. So first, Satan's power is curtailed. You see in verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He lay hold of that dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay. Now let's just ask a series of questions and stepwise see if we can come to the bottom of this. Okay. So first of all, who's the angel? Well, he's got, a, he's got the keys, right? He has the key to the bottomless pit. And who has that key? Very simple. Well, we find the answer. We had the answer right at the beginning. Isn't it wonderful how the very things that happen in the first chapter of Revelation reoccur and we see them it come to their fullness as we, we come to these closing chapters? Because it said back then, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. It's Christ. He's the one. I have the keys of, of Hades and death. And the thought of him coming with that symbol of ultimate authority, those keys not only of Hades but of death itself, and in the other hand, a, neck, a chain for the neck of Satan to bind him. That should fill us with great comfort. Who's not comforted even by those words? He says, do not be afraid. I have these keys. So this angel who comes with the keys and the, and the chain, that's Christ himself. Now the second question, who is being bound? 
This is by far the easiest question. Who is being bound? Even if we didn't have anything else, we could easily identify this one who's called the, the ancient, the serpent of old. Because that's, of course, the same serpent, the same serpent that deceived Eve way back in the garden. But we don't even need that because we have it in the most explicit terms. In verse 2, he laid hold of that dragon. It's four names, isn't it? The dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. Four names, all referring to the very same being in different ways. Dragon has been the the title given to him as he has sway over the, the world and to empowers these other agents of evil. That's the thing we've been dealing with in Revelation The serpent as old as the original tempter of mankind. And then the devil as the fallen angel. He's a demon. Fallen angels are demons. He's the devil in the sense that not that there's just one, but he's the one who's over all the rest and through whom the rest in various ways have their power. And he's the Satan. It's uh, interesting in the Greek. There's no article in front of devil, but there is in front of Satan. He's the Satan because it's not just a proper Name, it is also a title, and it means the one who accuses God's people. And we remember how that worked in two Old Testament books, in the book of Job, as Satan is there to accuse Job, this most righteous man on earth. He's accusing Job to God. And likewise, um, also in the book of, of Zechariah, he's accusing Joshua the high priest. Well, he is our enemy. To summarize these things, he is Christ's enemy and he is ours. That's the one who is being bound. Okay? So Christ is the one with the keys. The one who is being bound is Satan. And now what is this binding? Because it says in verse 2, He bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. Now, this is a little harder to answer. This is the hardest uh, question to answer. But let's first of all just consider this cannot be, this isn't the actual end of Satan. Um, Somehow his curtailment, whatever the binding entails, is not final in the way that it's going to be as we see at the end of the chapter in which he's thrown into the lake of fire. Now, that's very final. There's no coming back from the lake of the fire. Um, There is coming back from this kind of being bound. And there's no further influence, there's no nothing to be heard of from Satan in eternity as he's thrown into this lake of fire. But somehow and in some way he retains enough of him, his, his power that he can be let loose. Now, let's just think about then what might this binding be? Well, in the Gospel of Mark it says this, Mark three twenty two, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub. And by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. You see, that's the thing. The, in, in Mark 3, the Pharisees are accusing Christ, and apparently they have come to the conclusion that he's not being guided by the Holy Spirit. He's being guided by Satan himself. Now, that's a serious matter. And Christ, of course, has to respond to these things. Verse 23, So he called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. And what he's saying in all these things, I've come specifically to destroy the work of Satan. I've come to plunder him. 
And what you're saying is bizarre nonsensical. Satan's not empowering me. I've come to destroy him. These things are at absolute odds. And what he goes on to say is this. And here's the absolute equation that we must understand. Verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then he will plunder his house. And brothers and sisters, this is the thing that you must understand. Satan's power is so great. His dominion, his deception over people is so significant that there is no way that his house can be plundered and that we can be set free unless someone bind the strong man. Christ said it himself. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. It's got to happen. It has to happen. He's talking about the fact that he was coming to save people who had been sold under sin and are slaves of Satan, and the only way to rescue them would be to bind the strong man. And I want to tell you that that is precisely what he did on the cross. It's not the only thing he did on the cross, but one of the effects of his laying down his life, paying for the sins of his people, is that Satan's power over them is greatly curtailed. It is bound We see, by the way, that Satan has been bound. We see this in the preview in Luke. By the way, the picture is a wonderful one. He's being bound. uh, Thankfully, I I hope none of us have, have had an experience of being bound. But the thing is, very often, you're still able to speak. And you have the picture of a strong man who has been bound, and he can't actually do anything. He can't hold these captives. He can't hold them at gunpoint. He can't keep them in a prison anymore. But he can just talk. And that's, of course, the nature of this binding. The only power that Satan has left after he's been bound at the cross is the power of his mouth. And sadly, he can still speak to us quite a bit. We just need to remember not to listen to this defeated enemy. Well, we see that Satan has, in fact, been bound. We see that in the, the preview, of, as it were. There's a, we were given a preview of what's to come in Luke 10, of the sending out of the apostles to do this work of world evangelism. We have kind of a preview of all the things that are to come, and it's as if they've already happened. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. That's, gonna, that's a surprise. As you know, demonic activity was at an all-time high at the time of Christ, and it seems like every place they go, they meet people who are bound up with Satan, and, and they can't even free them uh, in their power. And he says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And in verse 19, Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. This great power of the fall is the fall of Satan and of the transfer of authority to the saints who now have power to trample over Satan and his kingdom. Now, how can you trample the enemy? How can you take what belongs to him? It's impossible. Or soon enough, as we're going to see in the outpouring of Pentecost in Acts chapter 3, how is it possible that 3,000 people are going to be saved in a single day? from all over the world, and he's speaking these different languages. It's impossible, unless Satan had actually been bound at the cross, that Christ had actually won that victory, and that Satan, therefore, is a defeated enemy, and he is in the process right now 
of plundering his house. And maybe that's another way of thinking about all of redemptive history is Christ doing the work of plundering Satan's house and recovering all those poor people who have been bound and kept in darkness, bringing light to them and setting them free. He had to to bind that strong man. That's the work of this binding. Now, what is a thousand years? This is a contentious issue sometimes, but I, I don't think it needs to be. It's mentioned six times, by the way, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 6, in verse 7. And this thousand year. Well, so many of the numbers, indeed, in some sense, all of them, at least in some way. Some of them refer to something real, like the seven churches. Those are something real. But they're also a sort of symbolic and typological number as well. The number seven actually stands for the perfect number of all of, of, of God's churches. So even when they're literal, they're also typological. But we've seen so many of them, and we've seen, except for the example of the 144,000. It's not the actual number of, of God's people. It's 12 times 12. 12 apostles times 12 uh, tribes of Israel times 1,000. All this, the fullness of Israel, the fullness of the New Testament church will be brought in. And then we have things like Psalm 90. If we're understanding this, what is this thousand year might be pointing to? We have something like Psalm 90 verse 4. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past and like a watch in the night. Now, does that mean, is that speaking to a precise actual number in which if it were 2,000 years, then it would be like two past nights in God's sight? Or is he speaking more generally of a very, very long time? I think that would be the case. I think it's a long time. What a thousand years is meaning uh, a long time relative to us, longer than any of our lifetimes. In fact, we remember even as long as the the pre-flood patriarchs lived, none were allowed to live actually a thousand years. Even Methuselah died before a thousand years. But rather as something that God is, uh, to God is something that is near at hand. It may be a very long time for us, but for God it is near at hand. And more importantly, 1 Peter 3.8 says this, But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, what's the context here? The context is the timing of the end. Some people think that Christ isn't going to come back, but he is. And he says it's like a thousand years. It's a really long time. It's much longer than any of our lifetimes. But it is a period of time that is very real and specific and at hand to God himself. And that time could well be described then as being a thousand years. A long time relative to us, not to God. And indeed, it is perpetually at hand, isn't it? Christ's end relative to us is perpetually at hand. It could come at any time. So to summarize then, Christ has greatly curtailed Satan's power. He bound them on the cross for the purpose of plundering his house, which is to carry out the work of redemption, to save sinners. And he's going to do that for the, the time that he set. The time is a very long time. It's longer than any human lifetime. But it is a time that is perpetually at hand and known certainly to God himself. Well, secondly then, death's power over the saints has ended. If, if these people 
were afraid of Satan, they can be assured that he has been bound and that he is a defeated enemy and that Christ even now is plundering his house. But also we can understand that death's power over the saints has ended. We read in verse 4, And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God in Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, we see this. There's a contrast between the situation of those who believe in Christ and live and reign with him and also the rest of the dead. There are two resurrections and two aspects, two different kinds of death that are spoken of. You know, it's interesting to me that throughout the New Testament, in as much as it is possible for the New Testament writers to avoid saying that Christians die, they do. And they speak of Christians falling asleep. And you ask, why? What, are we just trying to be euphemistic and not really talk about death? No, that may be our inclination to want to speak euphemistically. But the reason why it's that way in the New Testament is it's just not a good word anymore to describe what happens to believers. Death isn't a good way to describe it. Because death no more has dominion over us. We are not subject to the power of death. You know, the pain of death, the reality of death, the scariness of death is what lies ahead, what lies beyond this life. And of course, for people who don't know Christ, who don't have the gospel, it is a terrifying proposition to leave this world and to go into the great unknown and with this lingering, nagging suspicion that they're going to be judged and held accountable for their sins. And of course, they're right. And death is a very appropriate word for what happens in that situation because it is death not only in body but also in soul, an eternal punishment in hell. Death is a very good word for that. But it isn't a good word for what happens to the saints. That's why um, Paul speaks of them just falling asleep. Because if we are in Christ, we are in union with Christ. If we put our faith in him, then we're saved. We're not going to fall into condemnation. There's now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but rather only an entrance into most beautiful and wondrous world of love that is known as heaven, to be with Christ forever and, and ever, and indeed to reign with him. That's what it says here. And so there are two different ways, and they could not be any more different, and we shouldn't confuse them in our minds. Yes, most of us, with the exception of those who are there at the very end, at the conclusion of this thousand years, the conclusion of this work of redemption, Yes, the rest of us are going to face physical death. And surely there are some scary attributes to that. But what lies beyond that? Well, there's no more power for death over us. We've been set free from it. That's what it says, by the way, in Romans 6, 7. Death has no more power over Christ himself. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we, should, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Okay? And the point is that if death no longer has dominion over Christ, likewise death no more has dominion over those who believe in him, those who are in union with him. And what is the right answer to any theological question? It's union with Christ, right? So how do we understand all this? 
We're in union with Christ, and our situation is his situation. If he lives, we shall live. If he reigns, we shall reign. And all the rest of the things that are true of Christ are true of us. And what it says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty four. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass that saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death, where is your sting? Because the mere taking away of our physical life, that's not the problem. That's just the entrance into eternity of which we're all going to go at some point. The sting of death is our sin. That while we have sin that is not yet forgiven, while we have sin that is not yet paid for by Christ, then we have something terrible inside us, like a ticking time bomb. And our death brings us to the full conclusion, brings us to the full reality of having to deal with these consequences before a holy and just God who will judge us for these things. That's the sting of death. But for those who are in Christ, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that stinger has been removed. And yes, the bee still buzzes around death and it still has an element of, of scariness for us. But if we look very closely and when we're thinking in our right mind, we understand that the stinger has been removed because there's no more power over us. The, the bee can land on us and death can reach our house. But its power over us to do us harm is gone. And in fact it only becomes a, a means of bringing us to our Savior. A means of bringing us to, to Christ's arms forevermore. Sin, death no longer has this fear and sting and victory. Rather, interesting the way it puts it, isn't it? Where's your victory, O Hades? Well, it's not there. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because this is the reversal. This is that great power transfer of which we're speaking of. The way the game begins, not that this is a game, forgive me for, for saying it in those words, but you understand what I mean. The way the thing, the battlefield is set at the, the outset is that all the power is in the hand of Satan and of death and none of the power is in, in our hands And the way the game ends is that all that power has been transferred. That Satan has been utterly defeated at the cross. And eventually his his sentencing will be complete. Right now he's in a sort of probation situation. His movements are strictly curtailed. He can't go out of his house arrest situation to bind up God's people anymore. Although he can still shout at them through the window. But one day his, his, his death is already, his, his destruction is already certain. What about death itself? Well, death has lost its power for us. And all these things, in fact, the victory has been transferred to God's people. I want to just say, before we, we finish the second point, that, you know, death is the great problem, isn't it? And it's the great thing that needs to be dealt with. As I said, the reason why our society wants to have so many euphemisms for death, the, way, the reason why we want to make it so clinical and clean and out of sight and out of mind, it's not like that, by the way, in most of the world. It's not like that in Africa and in India. You, death is, is closer at hand and it's more visceral and it's a lot harder to get out of your mind. 
But the reason why we want to put it out of our mind is because of this sting, because of this knowledge somewhere in our heads that if we die in the situation we're in, we're going to be in trouble. That what lies at the other side of death is judgment and pain and darkness. And as I said, for those who are outside of Christ, this is true. But the great emphasis, the great point of what we have here in this passage is the fact that it need not be. The fact that Christ has won the victory. And that Christ has made it possible so that death no longer has power over us and need not then therefore be a fear. Christ died for our sins on the cross and if we put our faith in him then we're saved and death no more has his dominion. So Satan's power is greatly curtailed. Death's power has been ended. And thirdly, the saints are given royal power. Because in verse 4 it says, And I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So there's these thrones set. Amazing thought, isn't it? You know, we set out chairs. Um, we appreciate the, the work of those who do stewarding. Uh, Kevin and those who sign up to do that, and they put out these chairs. And the chairs are set. And your chair has been set for you this morning, and it's ready for you to sit down. As we in, and uh, we, uh, the only problem, in fact, was we didn't quite set out enough chairs this morning. But the, the idea is that we, these chairs are set in, in anticipation of people coming to sit on them. Now, these are rather ordinary and fairly inauspicious-looking chairs. But in heaven, of course, we have a different situation. We have thrones that are now being set for us. The reason why those thrones have to be set out is because we're going to sit on them. Isn't it a wonderful thought? That part of this work of Christ preparing a place for us is a setting of thrones for his own people to have this royal authority. And you see, now we can all, we can imagine sort of a, a child's birthday party in which there's a throne that we, in a, a sort of comic way, set out. And it doesn't really mean anything. But the interesting thing about here is that not only is it the show of royal authority and power, it is the actual substance of royal authority and power. Because it says that judgment was given to them. It's, uh, the way it's put in, in the Greek is a, is a marvelous thing. That the work of judgment, the power and authority of judgment, is, was given to them, handed over to them. Such is Christ's condescension such as our union with Christ, such as our sharing with him in all things, that he even gives us this, this greatest, really, of all powers, the power of judgment itself. Incidentally, I just say that, you know, if in fact it is true that we are going to be given judgment and that the power of judgment is going to be given in our hands, all those who believe in Jesus Christ, do you really think that you're going to be judged and condemned? You're the judge. That power's been given to you. You're not going to fall into condemnation if you're in Christ. There are thrones set and there's judgment given to us. And all I want to say about this is to think about the immense generosity of God. You know, these things, hard to put into words, but it's like the most ambitious fairy tale imaginable. You know, I I needn't say that I'm no fan of the theology of C.S. Lewis I've said that before, and it's not to be trusted. 
But which child reading the Narnia books has not thrilled at some of these things? I certainly did. Which of us is not who have read these have not had some breathtaking moment when we come to the happy ending, you know? The throne set for these four children. Now, the rule of this wondrous, magical place given to them by this supremely powerful and good benefactor who so generously sets them out. I don't, can't really think that children have earned and conquered this. I, I suppose maybe that's the point. Neither is it with us. It's not because we're so strong and powerful and wonderful, but rather that our benefactor is so good and he's so supremely powerful that he can win the victory not only for himself but for us. And he can set us up on these thrones. And the thing about it is, however wonderful we thought about these, these happy endings in such books, it was just a story and it comes to an end. But this is true. This is real. The, the reality of there being thrones set in heaven for us is true. And the thing is, it never comes to an end. You know, again, that I, I mentioned the melancholy aspect of a nice holiday somewhere because as wonderful as it is in its beginning, we know almost from the beginning it's going to come to an end. and We can't allow ourselves to be too happy about it. And likewise, we read such a book and we say we can't allow ourselves to be too happy because we know it's just a book and then the book comes to an end and we get back to real life. That's not the case here. It never comes to an end. It's real. And it goes on for eternity. And if we understand some other things of Scripture and we believe what some good men have said, it gets better and it gets better and better and better over all eternity. Now, I just say, because it's part of this passage that we're catching up, by the way, with the souls of the martyrs. You recall them from chapter 6. They have reappeared a number of places. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, as I mentioned, I think we're going back in time here. We're not talking about so much as what happens to them in the final end. I think we're talking about what has already happened to them in the sense of if, if uh, imagine again, you're in the seven churches, you're persecuted, you know someone, perhaps your best friend has already died in the persecution. What happens to them? All right, well, first of all, we have the understanding in, in chapter six that their souls are, are well and they're hid in the shed blood of Christ on the altar, and they're there in Christ, and they're in heaven. There's no problem there. But another thing that we get to understand here is that we shouldn't be sad, too sad for them. Of course, we're sad that they've departed, sad that we can't be with them, but we have to understand their situation in heaven, that they live and reign with Christ, and that is true even now. If we're in... Let me ask you this. Does Christ reign... Some people have a problem with this, and, and we need to get straight in our minds. Does Christ reign? Does he? Did he reign when he was in the manger? Some people said, no, 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 baby. He doesn't really rule over the universe. Yes, he does. He reigned even in the state of humiliation. He reigns now. Does he reign after his ascension? Absolutely. 
Yes, of course, these are phases of this work. And he came in this state of humiliation, and there's no appearance whatsoever of his rule. Then he raised from the dead in his resurrection body, and it's glorious. And we have, then, those who know Christ understand that he reigns in a way that they didn't see it before. And his work of gathering the church, and that's more and more apparent, you see, as his church is being built up. And then finally, it's all going to be patently clear, and there's no questions for anybody's mind, Christian or non-Christian, we're all going to know that Christ reigns. But all again, this is all just a reconciliation of the appearance with the reality because Christ really does reign right now. Now, if you're in union with Christ, what about you? Well, we know in eternity we live and reign with him. We understand that much. The thrones are being set. And the outworking and the fullness of that is going to be seen. Let's take it a step back. Okay, from, from not just in eternity to come, but right now, the saints who have already departed, the martyrs, and in fact, all those who believe in Jesus Christ, what are they doing right now? Well, they're alive, and they're with Christ, and they're in union with him, and that means they reign. Okay, now take it back one more step. What about before they died? Well, if they're in union with Christ, then all that pertains to Christ pertains to them. And for them, as it is for us, that means that we reign as well. We live and we reign with Christ, whether in life or in death, in this world or the world to come. That is our situation. Because he reigns, we reign. And as his fullness, as the completeness of his reign is solidified and grows in these phases, so is the outworking and the fullness and completeness of our reign. Now the pressing question for those people back in the seven churches, what's going to happen to me? I'm afraid. What's going to happen to me if I stay faithful? What's in store for me? And the answer is, I'll tell you. You're going to live and reign with Christ. And that's the reality for us. What's in store? We're going to live and reign with him. Well, let's think about just two applications for this. The first one is to behold the power of Christ. It's wonderful to think of the power that will be given to us, but what we have to, be, to see, what we have to put our, our eyes on, our focus on, is in the power of Christ. He has enough power. This power is sufficient to bind Satan. Look, there's no two ways about it. He is a strong man. We've said that. Even now, he's just using his mouth. It's the only thing he's got left. He's, he's tied up, as it were. He's in a jail somewhere, and he's still yelling out and using his servants to convey messages, and even that's powerful. This is a strong, strong man. And the only way that he was going to be bound, the only way that we were going to be saved from his power would be for a stronger man to come along. And that's who Jesus Christ is. His power is enough to bind Satan. Even more so, it's enough to save us from our sins. As as we've mentioned, yes, yes, of course, we have a big problem with Satan. Yes, that's a big thing to be under his, the, those who are stuck under his, his, uh, his thrall, his, his power are in big trouble. But even worse so is our situation before God, because if we're sinners, then we know that we're going to be judged by God. We're going to be held accountable for each one of those, judged absolutely justly, and the just uh, condemnation for those sins is eternity in hell. That's a big, big problem. And the power to fix that problem is unimaginable. We've, we've spoken of it before. 
as we've considered uh, the saints, and particularly John in heaven, crying out and weeping because no one was found able to open the seals and move forward the history of redemption. Of course, no one's able. John wasn't able. Those strong angels aren't enough to do that. There's only one who's strong enough to do that, and that was Christ. This God-man, infinite God, in all of his infinite authority and power and holiness, taking on human flesh, and able, therefore, to die on the cross and to save us from our sin. He has that power, and he used it. It's enough, by the way, this power. If that's enough to accomplish those two things, then it's more than enough to save us from our circumstances. It's interesting to me how when we take our eye off of the big picture and our circumstances loom so huge in our minds, we start to think that this is the one thing we finally encountered, the one thing that Christ's power isn't good enough to deal with. Yes, okay, maybe he's bound Satan, taken away his power, and he's robbing his house as we speak. And he could even deal with our sin. But, now this thing, this job situation, this school situation, this relationship situation, I don't know about this one. We may have finally come to that one thing that Christ's power isn't sufficient to handle. I know it sounds silly because it is. And we understand that, again, in the clear light of day. But when these things hit us, it's not so apparent. We need to zoom out again and see the bigger picture. We need to understand the great power of Christ. It is enough to save us from our circumstances. And moreover, it is more than enough to save us from death itself. That's what I said, you know. This is a great problem. It is a great problem. Who, Who can say that they have no fear of death whatsoever? Who can say that they look at death and, and do not think of it with some amount of dread? Well, if we're outside of Christ, again, we have good reason for that. Because what lies on the other side is judgment, right and just condemnation for our sins. But that's, if that's the great problem, we need to understand that Christ is the great solution to it. That he has made a way. For all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, he has made a way for you that the power of death would be destroyed. That rather than an anxious and fearful awaiting of condemnation when you die, there is a reality that you'll be brought into the presence of your loving Savior Jesus Christ forever. His power is great enough to save you from death itself. We have to believe that. And if we believe that, then we have already put our trust in Christ. And by the way, almost as an add-in, almost as a throwaway, it's enough to put you on the throne. Uh, These other things are pretty impressive, but look, we've got to understand. um, None of us are natural-born rulers of the world. And the notion that Christ's power is so so immense uh, is demonstrated, in fact, that he can put us on the throne. You know, when there is a situation of a conquering of another nation, um, very often what is, what is attempted is not merely an annexation of the territory, but in a, a demonstration of power, it's a, a, a putting your own people on the throne, as it were, of setting up your puppet government somewhere. And it is an, a, to, to keep up that puppet government 
Um, you're a government by extension. You put someone on the throne. And very often the person you put on the throne isn't all that great. But the exercise of power in order to do that is immense in military and political terms. To keep that going in the long term is no small task. Because the one that you've put isn't worthy to be on that throne. Let me say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we are not worthy to be on that throne. But Christ has so much power that he's able to put us there forever. That is a lot of power. Now, secondly, as we behold the power of Christ, we also need to behold the weakness of Satan. As it's very hard to keep these two things together. I know we want to have it either one way or another, and that's what some of the confusion over this passage has been, because we say, wait a minute, it doesn't look like Satan's bound to me. It seems like he's still exercising a great deal of authority. And we have to understand, maybe, it helps us to understand some of the other aspects of of revelation to see that he's using these agents. In fact, that's maybe the point of having these, this threefold exercise of, of power, this unholy trinity, as it were, that he's actually uh, influencing. He's the root influence behind these, the Antichrist, who in turn is the root an- influence of running the world and its world system and the rest of it. He's not exercising direct power. So we have to understand that. He doesn't rule it with an iron fist. He rules it with his mouth. And with the words and the lies that he speaks, he, this word, this exercise of authority is, is over all people. Now, even so, though, we have to understand that the confusion, the difficulty comes because the experienced power of Satan seems to be so great. And we say, how could he be bound? And we have to understand that I don't want to deny the real threat that Satan has. In fact, God's word makes it very clear that we've got to be careful about him. We need to understand that he represents a threat. He's always trying to speak lies to us. He's always trying to deceive us. He can't make us do anything, but he speaks to us, and it's too often we listen. Well, what I do want to say, rather than speak of complete dichotomy between Satan as absolute full authority and power over everything and everyone, or that he has none at all whatsoever, rather than that, we need to understand that it's something in between. He does wield a great deal of influence over the world. Uh, but the, the thrust, we've seen that before, but the thrust of this passage is that he's a defeated foe, particularly with regard to God's people. He's a defeated foe. He's an enemy, but because of Christ's great victory on the cross, he has these very significant weaknesses. And I want us to see that these weaknesses can be exploited. Right? We behold the power of Christ, and there's no limit there. I want us to behold the weakness of Satan. Not so that we ignore him, no. But so that we are not fearful. So that we understand that these weaknesses mean opportunity for God's people. You know, not only has Christ had power over Satan, that's that's no, no question there. But even we have been granted power over him because that's what it said, you remember? In, in the Mark chapter, or uh, the, 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 the situation that the disciples have been given power to trample over the serpent. That has been given to God's people. As we go out in the authority and power of Christ to spread the gospel in this world, we are given the power to trample over Satan. He's bound the strong man. Christ is there, having bound him. He's opened the door to the prison, and he's inviting his people to come in as messengers to speak the gospel and to lead those people out. 
He has this weakness, and we ought to exploit it. You know, Christ has been taking souls from the prison of Satan. He's been doing it for nearly 2,000 years. He's doing it right now. It happens every day that these people who were previously under the power and sway of Satan, they're being snatched from his hand, and there's nothing that he can do about it. If Christ is determined to save, then they will be saved. This gospel that he has has such authority that if you believe it, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. And there's nothing that Satan can do. That means then that God's church has a real and legitimate authority to go and to speak in the name of Christ and to save people. Well, let's exploit that while there's light in the day. Now, throughout Revelation, there's been a consistent message that there is a day coming in which that won't be the case. And even here, we understand that he's been bound, but he'll be loosed at the end. And he'll exercise a greater degree of authority. And we end up putting that together with other things. There'll be a time where the voice of the bride and the voice of the bridegroom will no longer be heard. The gospel, it seems, would no longer be be there. The last of the elect will be saved, and there's no more opportunity. But that day is not yet. This is yet the day of salvation. This is the opportunity. Satan has been bound, and all of his slaves are in a situation of vulnerability to the gospel. We can come and preach. And if the sovereign Holy Spirit gives us that power, then they'll be saved. We can plunder Satan's kingdom. We ought to do these things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so weak. There's no question of that in our minds. We understand our weakness. And Lord, in some senses, we've never really understood the depth of our weakness and just how bad our situation is. Lord, not only are we weak, but lying under the power of Satan and all of his lies and deceptions and of the weight of our own sins dragging us down to hell. And Lord, we're utterly powerless to save ourselves or anyone else. But in this great victory at the cross, Christ has bound the strong man and he can plunder his house and he can save the captives and set them free. And Lord, so we pray, if there are any among us who remain captives, those for whom death still has its sting, those who remain under condemnation and under the lies of the wicked one, we pray, Lord, that they would be set free, that you would demonstrate your power even this day, that they'd put their faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. And, Lord, that we would understand the beauty and the power and the wonder of what you've accomplished for us, that your power is so great, not merely just to save us by the skin of our teeth, but to actually Give us this royal authority and dignity and set us on thrones forever. And it's no fairy tale. Help us, Lord, therefore, to live not in fear, not in fear of Satan, not in fear of death itself, but rather in joy and in thanksgiving, knowing, Lord, that even as we came this morning, as we were on the way, that chairs were being set out in this place of worship, 
Lord, even now thrones are being set for us in heaven. Lord, help us to think on these things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.